Open your Bibles to the fifth chapter of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 4, Ephesians, excuse me, 5, Ephesians chapter 5. Boy, if I go back to 4, we will never finish. <laughs> Probably things I'd like to say about 4 that I didn't say, but, but go ahead and turn to 5 and then let's pray as we begin our study together. Father, thank you for our time set aside in the word this morning. We pray that your spirit would make the teaching effectual in our hearts in this time here. Father, help us to have ears to hear the word of God. And may your spirit apply it in exactly the right place for each of us. Flood our hearts with faith to know and love you and your word, the power of your spirit the glory of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So we are here in the fifth chapter, and it's the fourth message um, from these verses, verses 6 through 14. We're returning for the fourth time and fourth and final time uh, for the direct exposition of these messages, of these uh, verses. I will be back to the theme of these verses for the following or two more weeks after that and some specific applications, but we're going to finish, Lord willing, this morning in exactly what this whole section is about. And um, we have been called as new creations in the Lord Jesus Christ to be in the world but not of the world. That is, that we are to live in this world, passing through this world, but not organizing and arranging our lives and our worldview according to the world, which is living in open rebellion to our God. This reality of being in the world but not of the world is commonly referred to as the Puritan dilemma, the Puritan dilemma, and nowhere is the Puritan dilemma, I think, for us in our day and age uh, more difficult to live out than the realm of our sexuality. We live in a world that is saturated with uh, the sexual message. It is, it's used to sell everything. And so we live in a highly sexualized world, a world, I guess, that's probably similar to that of the first century. And so the Paul's words here to the Ephesian church are applicable and appropriate to you and I this morning living here in Southern California. Beloved, our sexual passions are a good gift from God. It is his good gift to us as his children, and it is a gift that has designed by him for our good, for our enjoyment, to be uh, lived out within the high protective walls of the marriage covenant. That is where it belongs, and that is where it finds its lawful uh, fulfillment. But like every other one of God's good gifts, mankind, uh, living in rebellion against God, has twisted his good gift and turned it inward on itself, and it has become a gross caricature of the good gift that God has created, and that is definitely true in the realm of sexuality. When we became a new creature in Christ, the, uh, the sexual passions, the illicit sexual passions, did not disappear. They did not disappear. And that hard reality can be very, very discouraging can be very discouraging to you. And I know there are many of you out here that have and are fighting that kind of a fight. And it's a fight we have to fight, and it's a fight we have to win. And we cannot grow weary in this fight. We cannot grow discouraged in this fight. 
And in this section here, Paul is addressing this very topic. It's very timely to us. And in the section, he, he helps us to see the critical role of both the Scripture and the church in fighting the good fight of faith here and gaining victory over the passions of our flesh. And he does it by providing for us in this section three guiding principles. Three guiding principles that we need to keep in mind as we navigate our way through our own version of the Puritan dilemma. And those three guiding principles are found here first in verses 6 through 10. And that first principle is we need to grow up theologically. Now, we have spent three weeks looking at this principle. It was interrupted by our Mother's Day message last week, but we are back to what we have spent three weeks going over, the fact that we need to grow up theologically. And we said there are three foundational truths in these verses, 6 through 10, that draw out what it means to grow up theologically. First, in verses 6 through 7, Paul says that sexual sin is serious. Sexual sin is serious. In other words, it it draws forth the wrath of God. Verse 6, let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, and these things is a reference back to verses 3 through 5 and the immorality there, because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. What we noted here is that God's wrath upon sexual immorality is designed for the believer not to threaten us with eternal judgment because eternal judgment has been taken for us in Christ if you are in Jesus this morning, but it is given to us in order to communicate as an object lesson how deadly serious God is about the issues of sexual sin. It is a very, very serious matter. It draws forth the wrath of God. Second foundational principle we saw here under the growing up theologically is in verse 8, and that is that conversion is radically transformational. Notice verse 8, he says, you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. In other words, you not just lived in darkness, but you were darkness. You personified darkness before Jesus Christ, but now you are, by union with Christ, you are A light in the Lord. In other words, the light of God through his son Jesus shines through us. We are no longer in the realm of darkness. We are now of the realm of light. Therefore, based on the indicative, the statement of reality, the end of verse 8, comes the imperative, comes the command, live out the new reality. Right? Walk as children of light. This is what has happened. You have gone from darkness to light. Now live like who you really are. Live as children of light. And then third here, undergrowing up theologically, Paul gives us in verses 9 and 10 the reality that discernment is not optional. In other words, this transformation from darkness to light brings us into a new place with the world. That new place with the world is one where we need to be sorting and sifting and evaluating all aspects of life, all of the various decisions that come our way in light of the reality that we are now new in Jesus Christ. 
So he says it here in verses 9 and 10, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth. In other words, that as children of light, we should bear the fruit of light in our lives. This is what ought to, ought to characterize us. And, and in that, verse 10, we are, we are trying to learn, or dokimazo, we are examining, we are testing what is pleasing to the Lord. In other words, we are discerning reality as pleasing to, go, to, to God. We are seeking to love what he loves and to hate what he hates. This is what it means to, to live as a child of of light. So, grow up theologically. That's the first guiding principle of the Puritan dilemma. We have to grow up theologically. And that takes us to what's new material for us this morning. The second principle in verses 11 to 13, we need to speak up truthfully. So, we need to grow up theologically. Now, we need to speak up truthfully. Verse 11, do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. Now here Paul is laying out a twofold responsibility for us as members one of another here in a local body of Christ, in a local fellowship, a local church. The twofold responsibility that you and I bear. And it is this, it is first that we are to avoid participating in the deeds of darkness. There is no place for a a child of God to be participating in the deeds of darkness. That's the first responsibility that we have, not just to the Lord, but to each other. But Paul takes it an extra step here, and he says that we also have a responsibility to seek to help our brother or sister who is caught in the darkness, caught in sin, who has fallen into the trap, in this case, of sexual immorality. And so Paul is is advancing his argument just a little bit further here. Look back at verse 7. Verse 7, he says, Do not be partakers with those who are sons of disobedience. In other words, don't participate with the evildoer. Now Paul advances it a little bit more here in verse 11, and he instructs us not to participate in their dark deeds. So don't participate with them and do not participate in their dark deeds. And perhaps I can can illustrate the, the difference here. And it's a nuance to be sure, but there is a difference. And so let me try it this way. Verse 7. Paul would say to the believer here that in verse 7 is that we are not to join with a son of disobedience in planning a drinking party. Okay? We're not to join with them in the planning of a drinking party. That's verse 7. Do not be partakers with them. But here in verse 11, he would, he would add something more. Do not participate. And he would say is that we're not even to attend one. So it's not just that we don't help plan it, but we don't go to it. And if we are at a party and it turns that way, we're to turn around and walk out of it. Okay, so, so we, don't, we don't participate in the planning of evil deeds and we don't participate in the evil deed itself. If necessary, we turn tail and we run. We run. Let me come at it a second time. Another example. Okay, just kind of keeping within the, the genre here in verses 3 and 5 where he's talking about our speech and the, the prohibition on immoral and impure speech. 
So we are not to join with unbelievers in telling dirty jokes. That's verse 7. Okay? We're not to join with them in, in telling jer- dirty jokes. Verse 11 is we're not to laugh at the dirty jokes that are told in our presence. And again, if that's the situation we find ourselves in, we're to turn and walk away from it. Okay, that's the idea of verse 11. Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness. Okay, walk away. Walk away. And that's going to necessarily cause us to stand out, isn't it, from the culture around us. We are going to be very, very different in when, if and when we walk away. Now, before I move on here, I just want you to see where he, he talks about unfruitful Uh, deeds of darkness. Darkness is unfruitful. Darkness doesn't produce life. The light is what brings forth the life. I mean, in the, in the analogies that he's talking about here, the fruit of light and so forth, right? If you, if you were to put a tarp over your front lawn for a few days and deny it access to the light, what would happen to your lawn? Right? It would die. It's death. Darkness belongs to death. It does not belong to life. The light is what draws forth the light. And so we are to walk in the light. We are not to be immersed in the darkness, for the darkness never produces life. The darkness produces death. Sin loves darkness. Sin loves darkness. And it's not a coincidence it's not a coincidence that the, the, a de, the debauchery of a city is euphemistically referred to as its nightlife. All right, this city has great nightlife. Well, when that expression is used, nightlife, that is, a, that is a euphemistic expression to speak of the debauchery that goes on in a city in the late hours. Nothing good, let me just kind of say this, nothing good happens after 11 o'clock at night. Okay, nothing good. When you get old, going to bed early, no problem. When you're young, you think life begins after 11 o'clock. Listen, life doesn't begin after 11 o'clock. What happens after 11 o'clock is you're tired. And as fatigue sets in, your defenses grow weaker. So, young people, listen to an old man here. Okay, young people, go to bed. Go to bed at a reasonable time. Do not stay up to the wee hours of the night. Nothing good will come of it. And you may find yourself in a place and in in occupied in doing something that you will later regret. So we are, we are of the light. We are not of the darkness. So go to bed, okay? Go to bed and then get back up in the morning. All right, enough of that. I just felt a need to do that sort of thing. Right, my kids are gone, so I, don't, I, can't do, I can't lecture them, but I can lecture you. So we have that responsibility, that first responsibility to not participate in the darkness. Second responsibility, second responsibility here, verse 11, is to help a fellow Christian who is caught in the deeds of darkness. Right? Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, verse 11, but instead even expose them. Instead even expose them. Now, the Christian life is full of all kinds of hard things. There's all kinds of hard things in the Christian life, responsibilities that come as a child of God that are difficult, granted. 
But I think for, for many, many people, one of the more difficult things for us to do is to confront another believer in their sin. I think for most of us even, I'll go that far, the fear of man is so strong, the desire to be liked, to be thought well of, to be approved, to avoid any possible conflict is, is so strong in us is that we will often look the other way rather than confront someone in their sin. And Paul would have us here to, to do just the opposite. Notice the, the strong words he uses here. Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of righteousness, but instead, right? The, the, the adversative here, but, is a very strong one. Okay? Instead of participating, you need to expose them. You need to expose these deeds. And this word, expose, is a strong word, and it has the root idea here of, of confronting someone. Confronting someone or something and, and showing him or it uh, where it is wrong, where it is at fault. Okay, so it's, it has that idea of confrontation for the purpose of bringing to the surface the, the, the fault, exposing it, and then it can be corrected. The word is used in a number of places throughout the New Testament. And what I want to do here, just to kind of get an idea, get, a, get a, a feel for this, is to look at a few of those passages with you. And you will notice something as we look at the use of this, of this word translated here, expose. Uh, you'll get a, you get a flavor of, of what of Paul's talking about here. So, so take a look. Uh, let's go first to Matthew 18. Uh, Matthew 18 and verse 15. The verb is translated there for us. Same one that's Paul trans, it's translated in the English here as expose in, in uh, uh, Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 11. But here in Matthew chapter 18 and verse 15, this is the classic passage on redemptive church discipline, right? And notice what Jesus says. If your brother sins, go and show him, that's the word, show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. Okay? Show him. Expose to him his fault. That's hard to do. It's much easier to show everybody else his fault. But that's not what Paul says to do. He says, or Jesus says to do. We need to go to him and we need to expose his fault. We need to, we need to convict him of his fault. We need, to, we need to show him how he has sinned. We're talking about confrontation. It appears again over in 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 2. Verbs used there as well. These are words to Timothy as a preacher. Interestingly, the preacher of the church in Ephesus. But Paul says to him, Timothy, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, there is your verb. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. Okay? So it's again, the idea to reprove is to expose, it's to, it's to convict. We see in, in 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 20. Speaking here about elders who are caught in sin and refuse to repent. Verse 20 Chapter 5, verse Timothy, 
1 Timothy 5.20, those who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all so that the rest also will be fearful of sinning. So there it's translated for us as a rebuke, as a rebuke. Titus chapter 1 verse 9, qualifications of an elder. An elder must be one, verse 9, that is holding fast a faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching so that he will be able to exhort in sound doctrine and refute, there it is, refute those who contradict. So expose, refute, um, rebuke, right? Convict. There's all of these ideas with it. It's used two, two more times here. It's used in verse 13. This testimony is true. For this reason, reprove them severely. So that they may be sound in faith. And then verse 15 of chapter 2. Titus, these things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. So you get the idea here. Back to Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 11. That we are not, it not only personally not to participate in the deeds of darkness here. But we are instead to confront them. We are to confront them. In other words, that the, the members of a local body, when they become aware of a brother and sister or sister who is part of that local body, that they need to help that one. They need to help them escape the snare of sin, the darkness of sexual sin. And the way they do it requires them to confront that individual. And beloved, that tests us in how much do we love how much do we love God and his word? And how much do we love this other person versus how much do we love ourselves? This is very difficult stuff that Paul is calling upon them and by extension you and I to do, to expose the darkness. Now this idea of exposing darkness in, in order to bring about change uh, reminds me of an individual from from American history, by the name of Jacob Rees. Jacob Rees. He's not a household name anymore, although at one time he was. Jacob Rees was a Danish immigrant to the United States in the late 1800s. He actually came as an immigrant to New York City in the 1870s, and he lived in the squalor of the slums of New York City for a period of time. He left New York City, he went back to, to his native land, and there he found Jesus Christ. And he became, by all accounts, a, a, um, a really devout follower of Christ. And he returned back to New York City, and to the slums of New York City, in the 1880s. And he returned with this mission. These are his words. He was committed to, quote, the service of God and his fellows, close quote. And he came back and he got a job as a police reporter, a police reporter. And in the realm of photography, there was a relatively new invention at that time, and it was magnesium flash powder, magnesium flash powder, which, which enabled a photographer to illuminate, to, to, to flood with light something that was dark and, and enable them to get a picture of it. And so he would go out every night, he and some others, and they would go to the darkest, most dangerous slums of New York City in the 1880s, and they would photograph them. 
They would, this is a place where it, where it was so dangerous, the, the police themselves didn't really want to go there. There were no street lights and things like that. And so these people, they we're talking about children being abused, and, and we're talking about prostitution, and we're talking about, you know, all kinds of, of muggings and, and all of this sort of thing. And it was a place where the immigrants from Eastern and Southern Europe and Asia, when they came into New York City at the turn of the century, they flooded in to these ghettos. And it was a very, very dangerous place. It was a very ugly place. It was a place that was just rampant with crime. And so he would go there and he would take pictures. And then he would use these pictures along with lectures to to make aware the wealthy of New York City as to what was going on in their midst. And he actually published a photo book In 1890, it was called How the Other Half Lives. Maybe you've heard that expression, right? We're going to see how the other half lives. Well, that's the title of his book. And it it set New York on its ear. People had no idea that, that fellow human beings were living in such squalor. And it caught the attention of the president of the New York City Police Board, a, a, a reformer by the name of Theodore Roosevelt. Theodore Roosevelt, and he uh, became friends with Jacob Rees, and together they, they began to, to move along with some of the wealthy of, of New York society to, to bring about some laws to, to try to bring a measure of civility and humanity to what was a cesspool in the turn there of the 19th century. So exposing the darkness, verse 11, do not participate but instead expose it or expose them. Why? Why? Verse 12. For it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. The reason, right, the reason why believers are not to participate in the sin that Paul has been describing here and instead to expose it is because this kind of behavior is disgraceful. Verse 12. It is disgraceful. And the disgracefulness, interestingly, extends not just to the act of of sexual sin itself, but also to the discussion of the details of the act. Look again. For it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. The disgrace is not just the sin itself, but it it is the intimate discussion of the details of the sin. Why? Well, the answer to that is because the images that are raised in our minds through an unfiltered discussion of sexual sin implant them upon our hearts and our minds. And they, in effect, defile us, even though we were not the one participating in them. Right? Once you have heard something, you can't unhear it. You can't unlearn it. You cannot forget it. So in the process of of confronting, redemptively confronting someone caught in sexual sin, what Paul says is we need to be very, very careful. We need to be very, very careful. Now this brings up some questions, doesn't it? I mean, things like this. You know, how can we help a fellow believer caught in darkness without entering into the darkness ourselves? How are we going to help somebody If we're we're not allowed to go into the darkness, how can we help somebody? Or said another way, 
How do we expose and rebuke sexual sin without specifically speaking of the defiling behaviors themselves? How do we do that? How do we remain innocent but not naive? How do we remain innocent but not naive? These are good questions. These are, these are important questions to ask. And if you find yourself in that situation where you're trying to help somebody, you need to have a good answer to this. You need to have a good answer. And fortunately for us, the the answer to these questions is given to us by Paul in the next verse. It's given here in the next verse, verse 13. It is disgraceful even to speak of the things done by them in secret. Verse 13 But all things become visible when they are exposed by the light. For everything that becomes visible is light. This is a tough verse. At least as it's rendered here by the New American Standard and by your English Standard Version. So if those are the two versions you're using, I'm using the NASB, the New American Standard. I know a number of you are using the English Standard Version. And the translation of this verse is a, is a difficult translation, and it has led to a lot of conflicting interpretations of exactly what Paul is saying. And I think the way to sort through this and to answer the question of how to help someone caught in the darkness of sexual sin without becoming defiled by it ourselves is revealed in an older translation, which was the the original, I think it's the 19, what was it, 1977 uh, NIV, right? The New International Version translation. And this is how the NIV handles this verse. Sorry, 1984. This is how the NIV handled this verse, verse 13. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible, for it is light that makes everything visible. Okay? That's a clearer translation of the Greek here in verse 13, and it really answers the question about how to help someone in darkness without coming into the darkness and becoming defiled by it ourselves, right? Light shows things to be what they really are. That's the function of light, one of the functions of light. is It it reveals things to be what they really are. Let me illustrate it for you. If you're out to to buy a, a used car, You've saved your money. You're going to buy a used car. It is common sense that you don't go shopping for used cars at night or in the rain. Why? Why don't we go shopping for a used car at night? Why don't you go shopping for a used car? I don't mean in a pouring rain, but in a, in a light misting rain. Why not? Well, the reason is, is because at night or in the, in the rain, all of the, all of the flaws and defects in the paint job of a used car are hard to discern. I mean, the rain sort of bubbles up on any car. And so you have a hard time seeing what the paint job is like. And at night, you don't see the scratches. You don't see the, the places where the, the gel coat has been burned out and things like that. But if you come back to look at the used car in the daylight... Right? Then what happens? You can see every single flaw. Every flaw. And that's the idea, I believe, of what Paul is, is kind of getting at here. Right? So how do I help someone in the darkness? How do I expose their sin for the purpose of enabling them to escape from it? Something that is disgraceful and I can't talk about. I need to expose it in the light. 
I need to expose it in the light. I need, I need to rebuke the fellow believer here through the light. What light are we talking about? The light of the Word of God. The light of the Word of God. How do I help you? How do you help me? How do we help one another? It's by bringing the Word of God to bear. In other words, using biblical language and biblical categories when we expose sin, it is clear without being defiling. You think with me for a moment as you, as you go through your Bible from Genesis to Revelation, and you think uh, about the, the, the wicked behaviors that are, that are uh, spoken of there, right? Every single sin known to man is, is revealed there in the Scriptures, and yet it is revealed in such a way that even a child can read it without being defiled by it. And so you and I, in the same way, we can deal with the most horrific sins and do so in a way that we don't become defiled by it. And it helps the person we're working with to begin to think about their sin in biblical categories as well, by which the Spirit of God will bring conviction to their hearts. This is, this is some of the power of the Scriptures. It's really an amazing ability to address the most vile sins without stripping the believer of their, of their innocence or without planting defiling images in our hearts and minds. So we need to grow up theologically and we need to speak up truthfully. Okay? Using the light of the word of God as we speak up truthfully. And that leads us to our third and final guiding principle for navigating the Puritan dilemma. And that is the reason we are to speak up truthfully is so that people might wake up spiritually. So that people might wake up spiritually. Verse 14. For this reason, it says, awake sleeper and arise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. When we speak up to one another, when we speak up to one another truthfully, we issue a wake-up call. We issue a wake-up call to one another and to that person who is oblivious at that moment to the consequences of sin. Remember, let your eyes go back up the page, right? Sin draws, sexual sin, verse 6, draws forth the wrath of God. This is very, very serious. So a, a, a believer, a Christian who has been caught by this is oblivious to that reality. They're blinded by it. They are in the darkness at that point in time. And so we need to wake them up. We need to wake them up. We need to love them enough to wake them up, and we need to wake them up spiritually, and the way we do it is by speaking the truth to them. Now look at the way in your Bible this verse 14 is set out. It is set out in such a way that it, that it appears to be a citation from the Old Testament. And in fact, the lead-in, for this reason, it says, and that's a, that's a typical Pauline way of, of providing a relatively loose quotation from the Old Testament. The only problem is that there are no Old Testament texts that match this. He's not quoting the Old Testament here, at least not directly in the way that you and I, when we, when we talk about quotes, we tend to think about word for word, verbatim, that sort of thing. And uh, the New Testament writers use the Old Testament in many different ways. Um, but here, there, are, there is no verse. So it's not like, well, Paul translated the Hebrew into his own Greek equivalent, and that's why it doesn't appear that way or whatever. No. In fact, the best we can tell is there is some correspondence in verse 14 to expressions that are used in Isaiah 26, 19 
and Isaiah 60, verses 1 and 2. Now, that's, this is led, this reality has led a lot of people, and I think, I, I think it's right, so I'm here too, to, to see Paul as not quoting the Old Testament, but actually to be, to be quoting an early Christian hymn, an early Christian hymn of, of repentance and encouragement. And he's, and he's exhorting them, he's calling this hymn to mind, the, the verse from this hymn to mind, and he's exhorting the, the, the believer here who is, who is uh, caught in the darkness to wake up, to wake up and, and to abandon this darkness, this, this disobedient conduct. And he's reassuring them here that, that Christ is present with them and, and he will give them strength to do this. In other words, this is a gospel hymn. Now, one of the reasons we sing here, I would say one of the primary reasons we sing here every Sunday morning together is so to sing to each other. In fact, you can, you can see that um, a little bit later here in the chapter where he says in verse 19, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. We sing to each other in order to remind one another of the gospel. So when, when we're singing... You're singing to me. That's why I sit in the front so you can hear me. I mean, I can hear you. And uh, so you can't hear me directly. But that encouragement that comes from singing, okay, I think that's what Paul's doing here is he's, he's drawing to, the, to their minds a hymn, an early Christian hymn. And, and in this hymn, we see the idea here where he, where he talks about sleepers, right? For this reason, it says, awake sleepers, and that expression, sleepers, is used by Paul over in 1 Thessalonians as well, where he's speaking to Christians there. And he, and he uses the same expression to arouse the Thessalonians who had sort of dozed off in their behavior and become associated with the darkness, again, that was once their former estate. So over in 1 Thessalonians 5, 4 to 7, Paul says it here, But you, brethren, are not in darkness, that the day would overtake you like a thief, for you are all sons of light and sons of day. You see these same themes, right? We are not of the night nor of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. For those who sleep do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk get drunk at night. So we see the similar theme here, right? Awake sleeper. You, are, you have been lulled into a, a sleep. Uh, your participation in the deeds that once characterized your life before Christ is the equivalent of being in a spiritual stupor or a spiritual sleep. And then he goes on here in the second part of the, the verse 14 where he, he says, Arise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. And this this image, I think, that, it, that he's referring, that's referred to here in this hymn uh, conjures up the idea of, you know, your firm, former life in Christ, right? Chapter 2, verse 2, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. But now, like he says in Romans 6, you're to consider yourself as the dead to that old way of life and alive now in Christ. So he's reminding them of that reality. Arise from the dead. Why shall I arise from the dead? Because you're not dead anymore. You're, you're attached to the living one. And as you, as you implement that theological reality in your life, then, then Christ will shine on you. In other words, you will experience the, the, the fullness of the, of the light of Messiah upon your life and, and flooding your soul. 
It kind of reminds me of uh, Proverbs chapter 4 and verse 18. Where it says, the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn that shines brighter and brighter until the full day. So essentially, this, this hymn that Paul is calling to their mind here is, is to awake, you, you, you spiritual sleepers, awake and turn back to Christ. Live out the reality of who you are in Christ. Okay, so just kind of one more time, all four weeks pulled together, here it is. Right, verses 6 through 10, we need to grow up theologically. We need to understand that something serious has happened when we came to Christ. We are a brand new creation. All that old has to go away because that old draws forth the wrath of God. We can't coast. All right, we need to grow up theologically. Beyond that, we need to speak up truthfully, and that's verses 11 through 13. We need to speak up truthfully. We need to help our brothers and sisters, let's just make it personal, here at Foothill who have fallen asleep, who have become trapped, who have, who have stumbled into sin. And in the context of this, we're talking about sexual sin. All right, the truth applies far more broadly than that, but in the context here, we're talking about sexual sin. So if you know somebody, somebody's confided in you, a couple weeks ago I said, right, if you if you're, find yourself in this behavior, you need to repent, turn to Christ, right, seek and receive his forgiveness, and then you need to tell somebody. And I told you, you need to tell the person you're most afraid to tell because sexual sin loves deceit. It exists in a realm of deceit. And so you need to talk to somebody. Okay, so if somebody has talked to you in the last couple of weeks, if someone has come forward and they have, they have confided this in you, then how do you help them get out? How do you help them out of this lifestyle? You help them out of this lifestyle by not getting into the mud with them. But, but, but speak to them in biblical categories. Okay? It's not an affair. It's adultery. It's adultery. Okay? It's not just kind of sleeping with your, your girlfriend. It's fornication. Okay? So we need to be very careful and use these kinds of categories to help people think rightly about what God says with regard to this. And then finally, we need to promise them the reality of the gospel that it is the way out. That if they will turn to Christ, if they will awaken, if they will turn from the darkness into the light of Christ, then Christ will shine upon them and they will know the light of Christ again. They will know the light of Christ again. Beloved, sin in the camp is a big deal. It's always been a big deal. Because its corrosive effects spill over onto everybody else. We are our brother's keeper. We are part of one another. And so we have an obligation to love one another biblically. To love one another biblically. 2,000 years ago, there were some Ephesian believers who were caught in the blackness of sexual sin. And Paul calls on them to break free. And he calls on the community of believers to actively aid them in that deliverance. May God help us to love him and each other enough to care to confront. Let's pray. Our Father, this is a lengthy 
section in Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus. Really, when we think about it, six chapters and half of one of them is is given over to this topic. And it illustrates for us, if we all have eyes to see, just how important this is and how serious you are about it. Our Father, we confess that we live in a world that is uh, sexualized. That everywhere we look, television, movies, music, billboards, the internet, our phones, even even just the advertisements that arrive in the mail are frequently defiled by the depravity of Sexuality turned back in on itself. And so, our Father, there are many casualties in the church of Jesus Christ. There are many men and women who have fallen into the darkness. Lord, there are even some right now this morning sitting here listening who are presently in darkness. And so I ask you by your Spirit to open their eyes, Father, Enable them to, to see the devastation. And Father, give them courage to come forward, to step into the light, to ask for help. Please, Lord, enable them to believe the gospel. What is true about them is they're united with Christ. They, they are no longer darkness, but they are children of light. And help them to live as that way, to walk as children of light. Father, I pray for moms and dads who are perhaps working with children who are, have stumbled in. It grieves our hearts so that our young are being defiled in these ways. Before they're even mature enough to understand, they, they become sexualized and they have perverted images of your good gift implanted into their hearts and minds by the wicked one. Oh, Father, give great courage and strength and wisdom to these moms and dads who are working. For small group leaders and elders and and just friends who are called upon to help in an area that, honestly, it's hard to help. It's hard because It's so easy to become defiled ourselves. So may you enable us to have wisdom and to become good workmen in the word so that we can use biblical categories and principles. We we can shine the light of your word into the darkness. And may your Holy Spirit do mighty things to save and to sanctify. Father, may we live differently than the world around us. May we take our values from you, our cues from your word. May we live in such a way when the world looks at us, they know we've been with Jesus. Oh, grant what you require, O oh Lord. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.